DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who serves as the faculty chair of the Catholic Distance University. He is also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and is author or co-author of over 45 books, including the Pope Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia of Saints, the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Encyclopedia of U.S. Catholic History, and Pope Francis. Dr. Bunsen serves as a senior contributor for EWTN. With Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we are going inside the pages of the apostolic exhortation entitled Gaudete et Exaltate. Rejoice and be glad. Authored by Pope Francis. The goal of this particular exhortation is the one that has been resonating in the heart of the church. It's that universal call to holiness, is it not? It is. Uh, but as, as you know quite properly, uh, all of us are called to holiness. And this is something that has been taught forever. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, tells us that, and, and I'm quoting from it from memory, that all Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. All are called to holiness. And it, it quotes our Lord, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, one of the things that uh, Francis, uh, Pope Francis, is especially drawn to uh, you can see it in his writings and sort of the, how he frames a lot of stuff. Is not only the Second Vatican Council's universal call to holiness, which we can talk more about, but it is in the saints themselves who have given us uh, great advice. One in particular, and, and he focused on him in, in a 2011 uh, talk, and that's, of course, St. Francis de Sales, saint, doctor of the church, but somebody who also understood the absolute necessity for holiness to be for everyone. And if you read through uh, the introduction to the devout life, he recognizes that, yes, there's a great diversity in the church, but he also uses the term devotion, in other words, holiness and, and striving for perfection. But he does it uh, that everyone is called to this. And that, I think, is one of the keys to understanding this particular exhortation, but also the whole teaching of the church regarding holiness. I thought it was interesting that he quoted the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar when it came to our understanding of who the saints are, and that for a saint to not necessarily look at it, they don't have to have the perfect life, is imploring us to do is to look at the totality of their life. Yeah, I think uh, Francis, uh, early on in the exhortation, makes note, uh, and he does this in a series of other places where he says something in effect of, okay, here's what the church teaches, and we'll take this as a given. Now let's add to our conversation based on that. So in other words, he's not uh, in any way denigrating or relegating uh, what the church teaches on key elements, for example, the power of the Eucharist and the sacrament of reconciliation. Uh, but he wants then to say, all right, we know that this is a given. What can we learn from this? And he does this early on in the exhortation by making note of the fact that the processes of beatification and canonization recognize, as he correctly notes, the signs of heroic virtue. 
the sacrifice of one's life and martyrdom, and certain cases where a life is constantly offered for others, even unto death. And then he gives uh, examples that this is an imitation of Christ. But then he goes on to note that there are those who are beatified and canonized. Sometimes we only look at them. But he also notes, as he, as he writes, the Holy Spirit bestows holiness and abundance among God's holy and faithful people. But the, the idea of a holy and faithful people, of course, is one of those recurring themes that we have found in the writings of Jorge Mario Bergoglio dating well back into his time as Archbishop in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It's this idea of the, the quiet saints, the invisible saints, as he has said in previous writings, that those who simply lead their lives in the pursuit of holiness, who may not even be conscious of their own holiness in the sense of they, they live it in such humility. The saint that he quotes here frequently is St. John of the Cross, another doctor of the church. Mm -hmm. And throughout it, that understanding of detachment, of letting go, of serving, he is always referring us into a contemplation which draws us into an, an action, an action which is an extension of the work of Christ himself. Right. So we see two things uh, that Francis, in the, in the first chapter or so of this exhortation, uh, is very keen on developing. The one that we've, we've touched on, but it, it's worth revisiting, and, and that is the idea that universal call to holiness, it, it truly is for everyone. Uh, but we can't idealize, we can't consider that this, only the saints are those who are of a, of a specific class. For example, there's this danger historically of looking at the saints as simply being bishops and popes and women religious and those who are locked away in monasteries. No, the holiness that Pope Francis is talking about, the holiness that the church has always proclaimed is for everyone. And therefore, Holiness is found in the ordinariness of life. But then there's the added requirement in, in Francis's mind of that holiness being reflected in our daily lives. It's why he has talked from the very start of his pontificate, and even before that, of going out. What is it, what's the phrase that he uses? That the church closed in on herself grows old and tired. In fact, what he's urging us to do and in this exhortation as well, is to go out. He uses the phrase to the periphery, the, the peripheries of the world, that we cannot be closed in on ourselves, thinking ourselves elite, that we are saved and the rest of the world is somehow condemned or damned. No, we are impelled by our love for Christ, by our desire to imitate Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into the world. And he devotes a, a good chunk of this exhortation to that courage, that parasia, as he refers to it. And now we can talk more about that, to go out. And, and so it is, in fact, holiness in action. I don't want to miss this point, but as we proceed to go further in, I, I don't want to miss the fact that he brings up in this also the genius of women. And how we need to, this, the church actually, this is a reflection also on what Pope Benedict XVI exhorted in his audiences on the, the holy women of the Middle Ages, where he said that women have uh, something to offer, not only theology, but the church. Mm -hmm. And that in here, Pope Francis 
it, I think it's very important that he brings forth the four women doctors of the church, Hildegard, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, and Therese of Lisieux. But he mm-hmm. also brings forward an interesting woman who may surprise some, St. Bridget of Sweden, who actually incorporates everything you just said, Matthew. Right. She was a wife, a mother. She was very active, not only in her community, but also in the world and in the life of the church. Yes, she was a foundress, but before that, she had a significant vocation in the vocation of marriage. Well, exactly. So he's uh, including her uh, in this group, <laughs> significantly perhaps, uh, of these great doctors of the church. But there's something about Bridget that uh, strikes him as especially interesting. And I think uh, you've hit on it exactly, Chris, that here we are talking about a mystic, a saint, but somebody who did not hide from the world. And that's a point that he makes in this exhortation that, that's been interpreted by some critics as sort of a, a, an attack on those who seek the contemplative life. No, what, what he's saying is, because he uses the phrase that those who would flee from the world, that there is this temptation to flee from the world. And no, what, what he's saying in giving us these examples, but again, we note the inclusion of Bridget of Sweden, who for those who may not be familiar with her, died in 1373, born in Sweden, but dies in Rome, uh, which is that trajectory of so many of the great saints. I think of Catherine of Siena, of course, who grew up in Siena, but dies in Rome, serving the Holy See. And here we have in, in Bridget of Sweden, somebody who died performing the very things that Francis is talking about in this exhortation. Her hospice, her the place that was given to her to be able to, for her sisters, for the order that she would ultimately found, she converted into a hospice, a place of that pilgrims can come to, that the sick, the poor. She was very, very much out in the world, very contemplative, of course, but yet serving in action and imploring mm-hmm. everyone around her. And someone who went to confession every day. Now, you can make the argument that uh, was this somebody who needs to go to confession every day. But for her, that was her one of her anchors, a recognition of the importance and significance of the Sacrament of Reconciliation in her life. And he brings us also a saint who we know, all of us, so well, the role model that is, of course, St. Teresa of Calcutta. This, uh, I think, is for Francis, and here is somebody who's who's in his pontificate has held her up repeatedly uh, as one of the great role models for the modern age. If we are looking for somebody in a way who embodies, I think, everything that Francis is talking about in this exhortation, in this uh, exhortation on on what's the, the very title of this, Rejoice and Be Glad, uh, Gaudete et Exultate. Mother Teresa of Calcutta represents rejoice, be glad, but take that holiness into the world and live that holiness. And if there was somebody, I think, who was the saint next door, uh, that was Mother Teresa, because of the, the, the practicality of her holiness, the way in which she did not hide that sanctity from the world, but rather to a truly heroic degree took that heroic 
sanctity into the world to bring Christ to others. Why? Because she saw Christ in everyone. And he also shows the importance of encountering Christ in our prayer. He, he doesn't, as you said, he's not negating the importance of contemplation, that engagement in a very real way. He is actually saying that you have to, I thought it was interesting, Matthew, that in this, he, he points out that we have to be in him. You know, we hear that in the Mass all the time, mm-hmm. through him, with him, and in him. You know, he said, sometimes we focus, yes, he's in me, but we also have to observe that we are in him, and then we are called to be him in the world. And he uses the, the phrase that uh, a Christian cannot think of his or her mission on earth without seeing it as a path of holiness. And then he says that mission has its fullest meaning in Christ and can only be understood through him. So in other words, at its core, he writes, holiness is experiencing in union with Christ the mysteries of his life. It consists in uniting ourselves to the Lord's death and resurrection in a unique and personal way, constantly dying and rising anew with him. But then he adds something important. It can also entail reproducing in our own lives aspects of Jesus's earthly life, his hidden life, his life in community, his closeness to the outcast, his poverty, and his self-sacrificing love. So in other words, by contemplating Christ in our life, by emulating Christ, we also begin to appreciate a deeper plan for our lives in exactly the same way that Christ the Father had a plan. And that Christ who loves in us for holiness is nothing other than charity lived to the full. And in a way, this entire exhortation is built around charity in action, love that cannot be hidden, love that cannot be suppressed, but love that must express itself. Now, this call to holiness is something, again, we are all to be aware of, but he also says you have to realize there are two enemies to that holiness. And this is probably one of the most interesting sections. It's all, and I don't want to negate any, I say that all Mm -hmm. reverence because it is an apostolic (laughs) exhortation. But this particular chapter two is, can we say at the very least, interesting. Interesting. I think uh, some would uh, term it as somewhat controversial in the sense that um, these are ideas, uh, as we see throughout this whole exhortation, ideas that Francis has talked about previously. It has to be said at the outset of any discussion of chapter two that just a few weeks ago, we had the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith issue a document on these two very heresies, these two modern enemies of holiness, as Pope Francis puts it. And that was a document called Placuit Deo. And we are talking about uh, the dangers of Gnosticism and Pelagianism. Now, when you read through the two documents, if you put them side by side, uh, we appreciate that the concerns of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in answering the question of what we mean by neo-Gnosticism and neo-Pelagianism are slightly different from the way that Francis is using it. Now, are these in contradiction to each other? I think the better way to put it is where Francis is placing his emphasis and the kind of examples that he wants to give us on what he means by uh, two problems uh, that can emerge or have emerged and can give rise, as he puts it, to a narcissistic and authoritarian elitism, whereby instead of evangelizing, one analyzes and classifies others 
And instead of opening the door to grace, one exhausts his or her energies in inspecting and verifying. And then he adds the, the important thing that in neither case is one really concerned about Christ or others. And when we're talking about contemporary Gnosticism, uh, he uses the phrase that it is a purely subjective faith whose only interest is in a certain experience or set of ideas and bits of information which are meant to console and enlighten, but that ultimately keep one imprisoned. In other words, it's sort of an intellect without God and without flesh. Here we are. I mean, there's really nothing new under the sun. And there, most of these heresies, they're the same things that were experienced as we've gone through over the, the years, uh, Matthew, that the early church has experienced. And I would dare say at that time, those who fell into these heresies, they thought they were in the right. They didn't realize they were doing it. They probably thought that this was the appropriate way of exhibiting the faith. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But it, it, Gnosticism, is, as you know, is, is one of the very earliest of the heresies in the church. The idea of having arcane and secret knowledge, mm-hmm. but also this idea of uh, an elitist approach to the world that I know something you don't know, and I'm better than you are, and it gives me, therefore, an advantage over you, and I must be holier than you mm-hmm. uh, because I have this knowledge. I'm, I'm elite. I'm special. But he also, in this second chapter, notes that it is one of the most sinister ideologies because while unduly exalting knowledge or a specific experience, it considers its own vision of reality to be perfect. And the key here is he says, without even realizing it, the ideology feeds on itself and becomes even more myopic. In other words, it can become all the more illusory when it masks itself as a disembodied spirituality. Hmm. Now, that phrase that we hear every day is, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. That's one of the perils of this kind of neo-Gnosticism, the idea that everything is disembodied, that I don't need to worry about my religious life because I'm one with the universe or the, the body itself is separate from the mind, which can then lead in culture to things like uh, the idea that we are nothing more than a a bag of tissues of cells and organs, and we don't have to worry about that, which means I can do anything I want to the physical shape, to the flesh, and I'm safe. Mm. So if I want to completely dismember myself to turn myself into a gender that I wasn't born with, that and biologically I'm still a male or I'm still a female, This sort of neo-Gnosticism would say, well, go right ahead and do it. But at the same time, if I want to objectify someone, if I want to have and support abortions, if I want to kill those who are sick, who are elderly because they are not productive to society, neo-Gnosticism actually justifies that and in the most cruel of fashions. There is also this understanding that he desires us to have that somehow and he says this in a very practical way, and I'm paraphrasing it, that just because you have a degree, don't think you know everything. <laughs> yeah, because I've, I, I, you know better than anybody else I can think of, uh, Matthew. It, how many saints have been canonized in the last hundred years that have been theologians? 
when or compared to the numbers who are just the little ones, as he's describing here. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, the the famous uh, uh, phrase that's attributed to uh, Saint John Chrysostom is that the, the the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops and theologians, mm. and uh, simply knowing things. Uh, having a bunch of letters after your name ultimately means nothing. It it is helpful, but in the reality, unless you accompany it with a desire for holiness, a recognition of your own sinfulness, a humility, and the reality that there are people who will be in heaven long before you are, uh, none of these studies in the end are worthwhile if they're not tied to a genuine love for the faith, that humility that I just mentioned, but also a desire to imitate Christ, to live what you study. And I think Francis has a very, very important point there. Do you suppose he's been trolling Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of those other social media platforms where there have been many Catholics and just the Christian faithful at large that have had very, so we say, um, very strong opinions about the state of other people's souls. Right. We are constantly judging each other. And how rarely is it that we harshly and correctly uh, judge ourselves, that we do a proper examination of conscience, a proper examination of our own lives. And uh, the sin of pride is, is something that runs through uh, this sort of neo-Gnostic approach to things. And it is a personal blindness uh, to our own spiritual state uh, that Francis is telling us is a true limitation and a true hazard uh, for the proper development of the spiritual life. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission and if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. We now return to Inside the Pages.
he does bring forward a another uh, area that I think we really we may have heard the term Gnostic before. You might have heard the Gnostic Gospels, and now you have a better understanding of exactly what that means. But Pelagianism. Mm-hmm. Now that's something that is. I I hate to say it. It runs rampant, and yet we are clueless. Uh, I think overall to understand what that means. Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the fathers of the church uh, understood the importance of grace in our lives and connected to I'm spiritual but not religious is this idea that I can go it alone. Uh, I am my own God and I don't need things like grace. I don't need the, the power of the sacraments in my life. And Francis here is reminding us that uh, this, the new Pelagian, the Neo-Pelagian or the, the semi-Pelagian is, again, a complete lack of humility. And this mm-hmm. is something that Augustine talked about. Uh, as, as he notes, that the lack of a heartfelt and prayerful acknowledgement of our limitations prevents grace from working more effectively within us, for no room is left for bringing about the potential good that is part of a sincere and genuine journey of growth. We're constantly reading about self-help books that all you have to do is read this book and you can put your life together and you can do it entirely on your own because, as I said, you are the stuff of the universe. You are your own personal God, your own savior. But as Francis notes, grace precisely because it builds a nature does not make a superhuman all at once. That kind of thinking, he says, would show too much confidence in our own abilities. Underneath our orthodoxy, our attitudes m- might not correspond to our talk about the need for grace. And in specific situations, we can end up putting little trust in it. So his warning to Catholics is, okay, you may not be a Pelagian in the sense of total and outright rejection of grace, that I don't need grace, I don't need God, I don't need Christ to be saved. But there is also this mindset that we find among Catholics that maybe you're thinking along the same lines yourselves. It's so subtle and actually extraordinarily dangerous because it it somehow it can manifest itself in those who would feel I can control certain aspects of my spiritual life, that I can, and what I mean by that is that somehow I can ask for this, I can want for this, like almost like Simon the Magician in the mm-hmm. Acts of the Apostles, give me this, and now I can control it because I have a power. I, it almost supersedes grace by thinking, I have grace, I have this gift, and I'm going to do, do, do. And what it really is, it's all self-reliance. It's not allowing God to come in and use you in whatever way he deems fit. It's not the detachment that you need to have. I mean, even it's the, the grace of a baptism in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that it will do, again, I go back to Scripture, whatever he chooses to do in you, if you get yourself out of the way. That's it. Yeah. I mean, you, you put it exactly right. You know, get over yourself. Mm-hmm. Stop getting in your own way. And uh, Francis in talking about these new Pelagians, as he describes them, that some Christians insist that uh, instead of taking the the right path of humility, 
it's it's justification by their own efforts, the worship of the human will and their own abilities. And the result is this kind of self-centered and elitist complacency. But one of the darkest attributes of it, and he makes note of it in his exhortation, is that you are bereft, he says, of true love. Mm. And this as a result finds expression in unconnected ways of thinking. There's, And this is a criticism that uh, he has made before, that there can be undue obsessions with things, self-absorptions, uh, and focus on things that ultimately are not as important as other things should be. Instead of allowing themselves uh, to be led, as he writes, by the Spirit in the way of love. Have yourself be right with God first. I think John Paul said that too. Get out of God's way and let him be God. And again, a very generalized paraphrasing mm-hmm. <laughs> of the great saint. But it essentially, because we feel we have control and we understand things, that we can pass judgment on others. Right. You know, which totally belies the whole experience of divine mercy. It just blows divine mercy out of the water because somehow if they're not following certain rules, they're not doing certain things right, then that's it. They're done. They're now going to hell. Mm-hmm. Well, and what are we looking at? You know, what what is our gaze turned to? One of the, the points he's making in, in chapter two is Jesus makes it possible by, by looking and being in Christ he makes it possible for us to see not our faces, not gazing at ourselves in a mirror in pride that we think we have as a Gnostic in uh, the secret knowledge, this specialness, and, and as a Neo-Pelagian that we can go it alone, that all we need is to stay focused on ourselves. No, Jesus makes it possible for us. Christ allows us to see two other faces, two faces of the Father and of our brother. And as as Francis writes, he doesn't give us two more formulas or two more commands. He gives us two faces, or better yet, one alone, the face of God reflected in other faces. And he adds it in every one of our brothers and sisters, especially the least, the most vulnerable, the defenseless, and those in need, God's very image is found. And of course, how do we know this? We know this because we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And we are asked to see God, to see Christ in everyone else. And you can't do that if you're always turned into yourself and judging everyone around you. Yeah, I think it's quite lovely that, again, he shows us how it's done by bringing up the Beatitudes. Yeah, and in in chapter 3, what do we find? We find this uh, extensive discussion of uh, the Beatitudes, but he frames it from the standpoint of in light of the master is the the title of this. Uh And it's a beautiful way of expressing that if we truly want to understand how to lead our lives, how to turn ourselves to Jesus, it is a recognition that he is our master in the sense, not just of our Lord, but also as one to whom we turn for advice to be educated. Uh, and of course, we go back to the, the, the fundamental meaning of educare, it's to, is to draw out. So we are drawing out of ourselves, ourselves, and filling ourselves instead with Christ, and then framing what we do, as he frames this chapter, 
around the Beatitudes. And of course, he looks, of course, at Matthew 5, Luke 6, but in particular at Matthew 5. He says so often this, I, I wish I could go through and just highlight the number of times he says to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as a Benedictine oblate, I love it because that's the very first part of the holy rule is to listen with the ears of your heart. And as you, you just beautifully put in there, you could also say with the eyes of your heart, to listen and to see, and to see where he has you. And he uses the term fidelity. The key to the idea of fidelity is you are faithful to something. Mm-hmm. And by being faithful to Christ, you then allow yourself to hear his words. Uh that humility that weaves its way through this exhortation, it is that placing someone else ahead of ourselves. It is by giving the gift of the self, of ourselves to Christ, we in turn have the ability to hear, to listen properly to what he's actually telling us. And I really am impressed with the way that he takes these beatitudes and sort of unpacks them for us by focusing on those simple phrases of the Beatitudes, but then tying each of them to that is holiness. So he makes mm-hmm. the case, for example, keeping a heart free of all that tarnishes love, that is holiness. Sowing peace all around us, that is holiness. Being merciful, that is holiness. It's the most acceptable worship to God in the end. Yes, you should praise him. Yes, you should. Uh, all the things that we do in our devotional aspects. But the most is to respond, as you've just said. Again, not being closed in on ourselves. And it is as well uh, taking the risk of having the courage to be holy and then acting on it. And part of the, the this chapter where he discusses the great criterion, as he puts it, you know, he pivots from the Beatitudes into the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel, focusing, of course, on verses 31 to 46, where Christ expands on the Beatitudes and he calls the merciful blessed. And then how do we actually act then uh, on the holiness that we seek? And as he puts it, it's a page of Christology that sheds a ray of light on the mystery of Christ. In this call to recognize him in the poor and the suffering, we see revealed the very heart of Christ, his deepest feelings and choices, which every saint seeks to imitate. So we go back then to that imagery that we have already seen uh, in his discussion about the Pelagians, and that is, whose face are we gazing upon? We see the face of Christ, we see the face of the Father, but we see them in the faces of those who are suffering. So he makes a very practical, uh, another practical suggestion, one of a hundred and some practical suggestions that he makes in this exhortation, that if I encounter a person sleeping outdoors on a cold night, what's my reaction going to be? I can look at him as somebody who's annoying. I can see them as lazy or an idler, as he puts it. It's somebody who's standing in my way. Uh, It's a problem that uh, only politicians should sort out. Or, worst of all, I may look at this person as little more than the garbage that surrounds them. Or, he says, I can respond with what? With faith and charity. No, with faith and love. 
and see in this person a human being with the dignity identical to my own, somebody who is truly loved infinitely by the Father. And there's that phrase again, an image of God, a brother or sister redeemed by Jesus Christ. And with an exclamation point, he says, that is what it is to be a Christian. Can holiness somehow be understood apart from this lively recognition of the dignity of each human being is it's a very powerful question and one I think that a lot of people don't quite appreciate fully. The spiritual director in Pope Francis continually comes out throughout this entire document and in chapter four we begin to see as a spiritual director what he's looking for. He cites uh, many things that he doesn't want to go deeper into. He said it's been handled in other places but Mm -hmm. what he's looking for in a very real way, isn't the fruits of it should be a life in the virtues. And he states several very strong examples. Right. Well, he starts, of course, by noting what are some of the debilitating negatives uh, that can develop in our life. Uh, Negativity, sullenness, self-content, consumerism, individualism. Uh, I I like the phrase that he says, all those forms of ersatz spirituality uh, (laughs) that we see all around us that have nothing to do with God and that dominate, as he puts it, the current religious marketplace. That is uh, one of the most succinct little indictments of the sort of uh, therapeutic deism that uh, we see all around us of the kind of bland spirituality that unfortunately also dominates in so many of even the, the, some of the mainline churches today. But Francis then looks at what are some of the great signs of a solid grounding in the God who loves us and sustains us. So he, he looks at perseverance, patience, and meekness. And then uh, my favorite part of this, because he's talked about this before, uh, it, in fact, it was the, the title, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel. And he makes note of the fact, a joy and a sense of humor. Now, again, this is not something new. Uh, Francis has been talking about the idea of needing to have joy and a sense of humor from the time of his election. Uh, it's, as you and I have joked in the past, I, I have done a pretty extensive search of all papal writings. And as far as I know, he is the first and only pope ever to use the term sourpusses. <laughs> Does not, I think, That's use right. that particular term in this exhortation. But he makes note of the fact that joy has to surround us. Mm-hmm. And he says joy is also accompanied by a sense of humor. And you have to have a sense of humor. And he makes note that this is not the joy held out by today's individualistic and consumerist culture. Consumerism only bloats the heart. You can offer occasional and passing pleasures, but not joy. And then he, he defines it a little better. He says he's speaking of a joy lived in communion, which shares and is shared. Since there's more happiness in giving than in receiving, God loves a cheerful giver. He quotes Second Corinthians. Fraternal love increases our capacity for joy since it makes us capable of rejoicing in the good of others. And what is the ha- one of the hallmarks of saints throughout the ages? Saints always seem to know other saints. Why? Because... Holiness itself, when lived properly, can be really infectious, uh, but it is also something that tends to help us to select the people we want to spend time with, Mm -hmm. and that means those who are holy. And then, of course, he talks about boldness and passion, holiness and parousia. And this is not, when when he talks about joy or he talks about 
that experience of humor or anything like that. It doesn't, it's done even in throes of a suffering. Even when it's done, you're, there is something that sustains that soul that is going through a challenge, whether it's a physical illness or, as he said, you're, you're in a situation in your family and you need to be, be rock steady, but you have to be silent. That there is knowing and being fueled by your constant prayer, there is a grace that God will provide that soul if they seek him out. Yeah, it is, again, that seeking, that idea, too, that he develops of community, of being in constant prayer, the trust-filled prayer. And then and here's, here's where there, it has been noted by some people who have read this that there seems a contradiction where he talks about the fact that you can't flee from the world. Well, he's not advocating that. What, what he's saying is, in silence— we can discern in the light of the Spirit the paths of holiness to which the Lord is calling us. So it is in that silence that we need to be able to do what? To listen, to hear properly. Now, here the Jesuit spiritual director once again comes out in chapter 5, because we are essentially learning about the two standards. And he surprises a lot of people because he's talking once again about the reality of the devil. Mm-hmm. It isn't just some little spirit force. It is an actual person for Francis. Well, what does he say? I mean, in light of uh, in recent weeks, we've had questions raised as, as Francis, somebody who actually believes in hell. We had the, the Scalfari interview. We had the questions emerging. Well, in this exhortation, now we have to remember that this was well in advance. Uh, this is a long well before this uh, story broke uh, Holy Thursday and at a Good Friday. So this was already something that was essentially there, it was finished. That's significant because of what he says here. He says, we will not admit the existence of the devil if we insist on regarding life by empirical standards alone. But the key, as he makes note, is the devil is real. We should not think of the devil as a myth, a representation, a symbol, a figure of speech, or an idea. He says this mistake would lead us to let down our guard, to grow careless, and end up more vulnerable. Then he adds that the devil does not need to possess us. He poisons us with the venom of hatred, desolation, envy, and vice. I don't know how much clearer you can get in that. You can't. And you have to understand that in order to be able to discern. And I, I have to say, just on a personal note, I was so happy to see this whole section into it because you have to have that ability to be able to see both the good and the bad, the good, or should I say the good and the evil. Otherwise, you can't discern what it is that you're being called to or how you are even to navigate in the everyday world. Yeah, he says that, that discernment is necessary, not only at extraordinary times, uh, when we need to resolve grave problems and make crucial decisions. But it, 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 it is a means of spiritual combat, as he uses that phrase again in this chapter, where he focuses on spiritual combat on the devil for helping us to follow the Lord what faithfully. He says we need it at all times to help us recognize God's timetable, unless uh, we fail to heed the promptings of his grace and disregard his invitation to grow. It's exercised in small and apparently irrelevant things. So, Right in this last chapter, 
we go back to the very start of this exhortation and one of the key points of this exhortation, which is that if we are all called to holiness, if there is this universal call for holiness for everyone from the most humble chambermaid to the, the greatest of kings, to begin return to that imagery of Francis de Sales, if this is truly for everyone, then it is something that has to be lived in our daily lives, and that requires discernment. And he goes to spiritual discernment. But then he makes note of the fact it doesn't exclude existential, psychological, sociological, or moral insights drawn from the human sciences, but what does it do? It transcends them. And, and that's an important point to make, especially today where everything is sort of quasi-therapeutic, everything is sociological, and everything is looked at as a mere psychological phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point to bring out. You know, there is a, a line in here that I think we have to bring forward in or in paragraph 173 in towards the end of this apostolic exhortation where he says, naturally, this attitude of listening entails obedience to the gospel as the ultimate standard, but also to the magisterium that guards it, as we seek to find in the treasury of the church whatever is most fruitful for the today of salvation. This is one of those moments where, for some, they may be a bit confused only because it said in the earlier portion of the document, don't be rigid, don't be too scrupulous when it comes to the matters contained in the church's stances on certain things. And yet, at the very end, it calls us, but you have the magisterium of the church to help guide you along in that discernment. Right. Yeah. So again, he's, he's trying to anchor, I think, the importance of listening, of obedience, but also having that touchstone of the magisterium that guards our understanding of the faith. And we seek to find, as he writes, a treasury of the church. But again, it's for today. In, in our lives today. And it is that perennial importance of the magisterium, of that humility to the teachings of the church that allows us to have the humility in our spiritual lives, that allows us to have the humility to turn to Christ and to emulate his great humility, his self-emptying. And I just so appreciate the time that you've taken to be able to break open this uh, this apostolic exhortation. And I wish we had more time, but any final thoughts, Dr. Bunsen? Yeah, I, I think uh, Francis is giving us a kind of distillation of a lot of the teachings that he has given us for the last five years. So in this one document, and it's not that long, and it's a very easy read, uh, Francis is a very light kind of writer, mm -hmm. uh, we find real thoughts that we should reflect on. I would really stress in particular uh, the chapters on the Beatitudes and chapter 5 on the devil uh, in an age in which sin is being rejected as not even existing, as hell is being rejected as not existing, as the devil is rejected for not existing. It is a potent reminder of the obstacles to our spiritual life, obstacles to spiritual progress that have to be anchored in the sacraments, in the virtues, in the perfection of the moral life, in discernment, and in that humility and trust. And all of those things, I think, Francis is trying to teach us 
to take with us on our daily lives. And let's all remember that holiness truly is for everyone. You know, and I also, if you don't mind me offering this, Dr. Bunsen, just as a quick footnote, because you are the, as I consider you, probably one of the preeminent uh, experts on the saints of the church, that throughout this document, every single one that he names, whether it be a Bridget of Sweden or a Teresa of Calcutta to a John of the Cross, they are all those great mystical doctors who are uh, mystical saints who were so uh, foundationally anchored in their prayer life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The role models in our lives are the saints. I mean, we emulate Christ, but one of the ways that we can personalize it is in the examples and the role models of the saints. And Francis uh, has given us quite a few saints to look at uh, throughout this exhortation. Well, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, you are one of those saints in the making, and we're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a privilege to be with you, and please keep me in your prayers. With Dr. Matthew Bunsen, we've gone inside the pages of The Apostolic Exhortation, Gaudete et Exaltate, authored by Pope Francis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com And join us next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.